Our scripture reading today comes from Ecclesiastes chapter 7, as well as the sermon that we're going to hear. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 1 through 14. I'll give you a moment to either turn there or look it up on your smartphone. Uh, If you do have one of the Bibles in the back, uh, it's on page 556. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, beginning with verse 1. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of, of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter. For by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. Say not, Why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance and advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. May God bless the reading and now the preaching of his word. Before I begin this morning, I do want to give a shout out, a loving expression to John and Nancy Bluer, again, who um, watch every Lord's Day morning and worship with us, keep very in touch with the church, pray for us and support us. Also to our friend Mickey Myers, who's been so dear to Heritage Baptist Church and who struggles with recovery from uh, repeated serious surgery on his foot especially. And he's in the process of recovering and he tunes in and watches and benefits from our ministry. These are just two examples. There are so many others uh, who watch us, some from London. And there's a dear uh, Indian brother who watches from India frequently, and others. We're thankful for all of you. Now, uh, for those who may not know, we are in the process of doing an exposition of Ecclesiastes, a very difficult, challenging, strange, mysterious, sometimes confusing uh, portion of God's Word, and yet one that, if properly understood, brings tremendous wisdom and counsel and blessing to us. It's a book that, as someone said, finally tells us the truth about life. By the way, I wanted to welcome um, Ryan Barkley and his fiancée, Nikki, this morning. That's how you can weave something in the middle of a sermon. You just do it. <laughs> it's good to see you, Ryan and Nikki, and we're, we're excited about your future. Back to this book. It's a book that finally tells us the truth. 
And what it says to the unbeliever is that you might as well give up on trying to find significance and meaning and fulfillment and satisfaction in this world, which is under the curse of God, because there is no meaning and fulfillment and satisfaction apart from God. We live under the sun on this earth as fallen human beings under the curse of God, and that's why there's so much trouble. That explains all of the evil. That explains all of the the vanity. Solomon used a very rich word, which in, in our language would be pronounced havel. It's broader than just vanity. It, it can mean many things. It, it has to do with frustration and confusion and hurt and anxiety and disappointment and unfairness and inequity. It, it's, it's a rich word. And I'm simply saying to you that all of the problems that we have to deal with, even we as Christians, on this earth, under the sun, are due to the fact that this world And we as human beings are under the curse and judgment of God. And we live under the sun. And the only hope, the only hope, and yes, it's found in this book, comes when we become properly related to the God who is above the sun, who created the sun. And we're going to see some of that. Because it's almost as if Solomon just connects us this morning to heaven for a few minutes to give us the kind of wisdom that we need in order to find meaning and significance and satisfaction in life. So that's what the book is about. Read it. Read it over and over and over and pray for the illuminating help of the Holy Spirit. And you may find that it becomes one of your most favorite books in the Bible. I said it once. I'm going to say it again. R.C. Sproul was converted through this book. This book was the main instrument that God used in his conversion. Now, today's passage, which Dave read to us, represents a, a kind of striking change in style. I, I hope you noticed it. And if you've been reading it, surely you've seen it. You don't even have to think about the contents to realize it. If you just look at it, it looks different than all of the other passages. You you can tell it by the way it's printed. And the way it's printed actually reflects the change in the style of Solomon's writing at this time. Um, I I looked at all the translations this week, and they all represent that just by glancing at it. This is a proverbial section in Proverbs. It's not the only one. When we go over to chapter 10, you can just uh, flip a page, maybe notice chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. Go to chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. In fact, if you just set 5 out for a second... And see the rest of chapter 10 and the first four verses of chapter 11. They look different too. You know why? Because they're proverbial. And so we've come to the first extensive proverbial portion of Ecclesiastes. And what we're going to find this morning is that on the surface, these proverbs are paradoxical. They're a, they present a paradox for us. Each one of them is like, what? What? Are you serious? You can't mean that. And we will notice in some of these Proverbs at least seven betters. We were struck with one immediately. A good name is better than precious ointment. The day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. And then we find the word better again in verse 3, and we find the word better again in verse 5, and we find it again in verse 8, and we find it again in verse 8, and we find it again in verse 10. We're going to be looking at some of these betters, but on the surface, they're paradoxical. They just don't seem to make sense. They're shocking. They're counterintuitive. They're thought-provoking. They're initially disturbing. They're disconcerting. They're confusing, they're sobering, and 
they're humbling. Just to mention a few things about these paradoxes, seeming paradoxes. But when we understand it, we'll say that's not a paradox. That's a truthful statement. It just seems like a paradox. And by the way, the definition of a paradox is two doctors. Just kidding. We have a husband and wife who are doctors, and they're a paradox. But in the Bible, the paradox I'm talking about are two confusing thoughts. They seem mutually exclusive to one another. But the fact is, dear brothers and sisters, this proverbial section that we're going to be looking at this morning actually gives us wonderfully wise counsel. In fact, I would suggest that this section actually answers two of the questions in the last verse of chapter 6, which Pastor Keith preached on last Lord's Day morning. Notice verse 12. Notice the two questions of verse 12. The first one is, who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? And the second question is, for who can tell man what will be after him? Now, these are rhetorical questions. They're designed to make us say, nobody, nobody. And in a sense, that is true. From a human perspective, no one knows what is really good for man. No one really knows what will come after man. But the true and theological answer to those two questions is God. God. Who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life? God, God, God knows. Who knows, really knows what will come after you die in the future? God, God knows. And this section of Scripture is actually going to help us understand what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life. And this section, at the very end of it, verses 13 and 14, is going to help us to understand in a very clear way that God knows, and only God knows what will happen in the future. So that's what we're going to be looking at, the, the first extended proverbial section of Ecclesiastes. Now, I think that there are five sections to my passage. I think the first section of verses 1 through 4, it confronts us with the reality of death. Verses 5, 6, and 7 speak to us about our need occasionally to be rebuked. Verses 8, 9, and 10 speak about the value of wisdom. Verses thirteen and or 11 and 12 speak to us about the protection and the preservation that wisdom can offer us. And then finally, verses 13 and 14 speak very, very clearly to us about the absolute sovereignty of God. And these verses all together seem to be designed to help us not to live in denial. I really want to stress that. Because I'm going to make the case that the things that Solomon speaks to us about, we have a natural, intrinsic proneness and tendency to say, no, no, I'm not going to think about that. No, I'm not going to receive that. No, I don't like that. Don't talk to me about that kind of stuff. I'm kind of suppressing that. Don't be talking to me about death. I don't like the thought of death. Don't come to me with rebukes as if I need to be corrected. I don't want that. That doesn't build me up. That doesn't, I want encouragement. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live in denial about my need to be corrected and so forth. That's what this passage in this section does for us. 
It helps us to see how we should not live in denial with regard to certain realities, but rather to obtain wisdom, wisdom which ultimately is rooted in trusting our sovereign God who has decreed all of the details of our life and who alone knows our entire future and the future of mankind. So let's look at them. Section 1, I suggest, is verses 1 through 4. And they pertain to the reality of death. But here's what I want to do. I want to submit rather um, what, it, what it's talking about, what the message is, okay? This, I'm just going to state the thrust of these four verses in terms of the lesson. These four verses teach us, brothers and sisters, that it's better to go to a funeral than a birthday party. Funerals are actually better for us than birthday parties. Now, it's not teaching that we shouldn't go to birthday parties and enjoy them. The word better implies that there is value in both. And there is worth in both. And there is pleasure in both. We love birthday parties. And we've enjoyed a lot of births just recently in our church. It seems like Mother after mother after mother is delivering these days. And it's beautiful. We thank God. It's a very, very happy time. Don't misunderstand me. Don't misunderstand Solomon. He isn't saying don't rejoice in birth. He's saying if you put the birth of a human being and the death of a human being as something that we go to observe and enjoy and to uh, get ourselves involved with and show support for, it's going to be a lot more valuable to us if we go to a funeral home. Go to the hospital, go to the home, go to the birthday parties, Enjoy them for the glory of God and give thanks to God. They're wonderful. But at the end of the day, going to a birthday party is not going to do you nearly as much good. Believe it or not, as morbid as it sounds, as going to a funeral home. I didn't say that. God said it. And God said it in our passage. And he says it to us through Solomon. Now, the first verse is a little bit confusing because there's, there's one of those betters. It's the first better, and it's kind of like, what is the relationship between the first part of verse 7 and the second part? 7a says, a good name is better than precious ointment. 7b says, the day of, and the day of death than the day of birth. Okay, they both seem to be probably true statements if we think them through and understand them, but what in the world are they doing together? Does, do, you, do you understand why they're together? What does... Um, the superficial value of costly perfume to a good reputation have to do with the day of death versus the day of birth. Well, I'm going to again tell you what I think the answer is. Now, one possible answer is he's talking about reputation here, isn't he? He says it's better, better to have a good name than precious ointment. Precious ointment, you understand, in, the, in those ancient days in, in the Far East was um, used for special festive events and it was used to show love like the woman who anointed the feet of our Savior with a very precious ointment so that the aroma could work through the room. It was a token of love and honor. But the fundamental use of precious ointments and perfumes was to cover the stench of a dead body. They didn't embalm, at least not in, in the Hebrew culture and Jewish history. They didn't embalm like the Egyptians. And bodies decomposed quickly, especially in that climate. And so the first thing you have to do with a dead body is put spices all around it and rub perfumes and oils into the skin so that for the few hours or the few days that those who mourn come, they can endure the odor. But if you want to think of it as a kind of a deodorant or a kind of a perfume or a cologne, that's fine as well. And I want to ask you this, which is the most important thing for you to smell good everywhere you go? I was thinking about Pastor Keith this week. (laughs) 
Jonathan knows this, and anyone who ever travels with him, something I like about him, like a lot of things about him. But if you're riding a car with him a long way, and you finally arrive at your destination, he will go into a bathroom, and he'll refresh himself and wash his face and wash his hands. And I don't know where he gets it. He gets it out of his briefcase. He'll pull out a little cologne, and he'll splash a little cologne, and he always smells so good. And I'm not a cologne guy. I probably should be a cologne guy. But, but he always smells so good. But you know what? In about an hour, hour and a half, you don't smell it anymore. It, it, it's external. It evaporates. It goes away. It only smells good for a little while. But I'll tell you what lasts a long time. A man or a woman who lives for the glory of God and who develops Christian character and they're known for their honesty and their compassion and their humility and their hard work and their love for God and their devotion to his word and his cause and I could go on and on and on and that person's obtained by their lifestyle a good name. That's what we say. Boy, he's got a good name, I'll tell you that. What do we mean? He's got a good reputation and that reputation will stay with him all the way to death and after death. It's not like costly perfume. And we should all strive for a good name and a good reputation for the glory of God, of course, not for our own sake. But you, you begin to at least see the superficiality and brevity of the one and the longevity of the other. That's the point. And what Solomon is saying to us is, go to the birthday party, enjoy it, and you'll have a great time, and you'll come home, and you'll say, hey, we had a lot of fun tonight, didn't we? And wasn't that great? And then within a few hours, uh, you forget about the birthday party. But the proneness when we go to a funeral home, if we do it right, and I want to comment on how to do that right, is to go away saying, man, can you believe that she died so young? Can you believe that his life was cut off so suddenly? You know what? I'm going to die too. And someday people are going to come to my funeral home and visit with my wife and my children. And if they go there thinking... They are going to go away, changed. That's what the text says. Look at verse 2. Verse 2 explains it. It is better to go to the house of mourning, that's the funeral home, than to go to the house of feasting. Now it's not talking about birthdays, but that's why I said in my e-bulletin quote that it's better to go to the funeral home than Ruth's Chris. Because all Ruth's Chris can do is lay pleasure on your tongue. But look at the end of verse 2. It says, for this is the end of all mankind. What's the end of all mankind? Death! Death is the end of all mankind. Someone said every funeral anticipates our own. When you go to a funeral, it anticipates yours if you're thinking. And it says at the end of verse 2, and the living will lay it to heart. Food and the pleasure of taste lays on the tongue. Going to a funeral home and facing the reality of death lays something on the heart. And that's why it's better in the long run, all things considered, to go to a house of mourning than it is to a house of feasting. You see why now it's really not a paradox? Because you're going to take away something lasting, hopefully. Now, without the grace of God, you won't. I understand that. Charles Bridges makes a comment about this on, in his wonderful commentary on Ecclesiastes And he says, the value of the house of mourning is in the lesson it teaches. Here is the end of all men. What better lesson can there be? If anything will set the thoughtless to think, this will be it. But you know, it doesn't always set the thoughtless to think. And there's a need for grace. But no human being, converted or unconverted, can go to a funeral home and see a dead body lying in a casket and not have some thoughts. They can try like crazy to deny it. But they're, they're thinking because they're made in the image of God and eternity is in their hearts as this book teaches us and they know that someday they're going to die. So there's the first proverbial 
paradox, which isn't actually a paradox when we understand it. There's deeper value for us to go to the house of mourning than to go to a birthday party. So I just want to say to you parents, don't be afraid to talk to your children about death. Don't be afraid to take your kids to the funeral home. Some people say, oh, it's going to do harm to their psyche. No, it's going to do good. I'll tell you what will do harm to their psyche is helping them live in denial. You can talk to them. You can help them through it. If they cry and they're confused, sit down with them and explain to them the gospel. How about that? Honey, let mommy and daddy tell you why people die. Did you know that when Adam and Eve were created, he said to them, if you disobey me with regard to this test, you will die. But God is a God of love who didn't want us to perish, and so he sent his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. And when we die as believers, honey, our bodies are put in the ground, and someday when Jesus comes back, they're raised, and they won't have any problems or any weaknesses or any deformities anymore, and we'll live with Jesus on this earth forever. Yes, death is a sad thing. But it's real. It's real. Talk to your children about it. Try to help them understand a little theology of death. Try to help them understand, and I'm putting it in big people language now, try to help them understand the death of death and the death of Christ. You hear what I said? Help them understand the famous treatise of John Owen the Puritan, the death, the death of death in the death of Christ. Christ conquered death. Bring that down to their little childlike mind of understanding and help them with that. There's a cemetery in Tombstone, Arizona. Maybe some of you have been there. I want to go there. I love the West. I love Arizona. And the next time Diane and I may be privileged to go out West and go through Arizona, I want to go through Tombstone. You know why? Because I want to go to Boot Hill. Boot Hill is where a lot of famous gunslingers and criminals died. They died. That's where the famous shootout at OK Corral took place. And there are 11 rows in that cemetery, and you can read the stories of some of the people who died and how they died. And you will go by one tombstone that says this. This is all it says. I don't know whose name is on it. As you pass by, remember... That as you are, so once was I. And as I am, you soon will be. That's pretty profound. What is the dead man saying on his tombstone? I used to be alive too. You're going to be dead like me. And that's the value of going to the house of mourning. So the lesson is this. Funerals really, in the larger scheme of things, are better than birthday parties. Number two, when we look at verses 5, 6, and 7, we see the need for rebuke. And the lesson I could put like this is, rebukes are better than songs. If funerals are better than birthday parties, rebukes are better than songs. Look, look what he says. You heard Dave read it. It's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. And here's the reason, and you'll notice that all these better thans are followed with a for, of the reason, for the crackling of thorns under a pot, for as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This also is vanity. Apparently, thorn bushes were good for starting a fire, and it would burn very, very quickly. Maybe it was like kindling, and it made a lot of Rice Krispie sounds, snap, crackle, and pop. And some of you are way too, way too young to remember that. <laughs> How many of you remember snap, crackle, and pop? Okay, all right, quite a few, 50%. And that's how thorn bushes burn. But they burned very fast. I remember working with an old carpenter who helped me so much in the remodeling of our old house, which <clears throat> needs to be started all over again, but we're too old for that. 
he was teaching me about wood, how to cut wood, because we had a wood furnace at that time. That was a ridiculous period in our life. Um, I won't get onto that. But he said certain woods are good for a wood stove and certain woods aren't. And he would say, oh, that, that particular kind of wood, right, that, that pine right there, he said, that's good, for, um, that's good for fixing breakfast. That's not good for cooking beans. What's he talking about? He was an old man. He's talking about those old wood stoves in the kitchen where mothers had to, uh, and wives had to cook there, and, and certain wood would be fine for just frying some eggs and some bacon. But if you're going to cook beans all day long, that's not going to work. You just have to put it in, put it in, put it in, put it in. Thorns were like that. Thorns were very quick burning. They made a lot of noise, but they didn't uh, have a lot of lasting effect. That's what the laughter of fools is like, says Solomon. So what you may really need is not a song, a foolish song, make you feel good, divert your mind, help you live in denial. I need to be corrected, but I don't want anybody correcting me right now. I'm not up to a rebuke. What I want is a song from a fool. And Solomon says, yeah, but it's not nearly as good for you as rebuke from a wise person. Don't live in denial. We all need to be rebuked. One of the most humbling things to me as a pastor at this age in my life is the ongoing occasional need to be rebuked. It's very humbling. And I say to myself, really, you had to be this experienced and this long in the ministry and this long a Christian to learn that? You should have learned that a long time ago. God, forgive me. But it's good. Because Solomon says in another place, Proverbs 27, 5 and 6, faithful are the wounds of a friend. And the the kisses of a friend are better than the kisses, than the secret kisses of an enemy. The wounds of a friend are better than the secret love of an enemy. Kisses from an enemy that says, oh, I love you so much, but I would never hurt your feelings. We need people to tell us the truth. And so this is a better. It doesn't feel like it's better to be rebuked. Who loves being rebuked? Nobody, if you tell the truth. But at the end of the day, you love the help that it gave you. And you actually love the person who was that faithful to you. But we have a Savior to go to. We have a gospel to comfort us. The gospel enables us to receive rebuke. We have a Savior to go to when we face death in the eyes. We have a Savior to go to when we receive rebuke. The third section is found in verses 6 through 10, or 8 through 10. What do they teach us? They teach us that patience is better than frustration. Funerals are better than birthday parties. Rebukes are better than songs. Patience is better than frustration. Look at verse 8. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. We don't believe that a lot of times. We're just, we're just, this is terrible. Nothing good's going to come out of this. Why did this have to happen to me? Well, wait a minute. It's just the beginning. God is doing something great. Why don't you just wait and be patient? And then he says that this impatience, I want you to notice what it's rooted in. Look at the next part of verse 8. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. You would have thought it would say... And the patient is in spirit is better than the impatient in spirit. Isn't that the antithesis? What's the antithesis of patience? Impatience. Psalm says, no, let me use a different word. Let me help you understand what impatience is rooted in. Okay? Impatience is rooted in pride. I don't deserve this. This isn't fair. This isn't right. How come me? Ooh, there's the key word. Me. One of the commentators said, and this is a blunt, I'm going to use a blunt word, said, patience is the child of faith. Impatience is the bastard of pride. Usually that's sort of a curse word. But you who are adults, you know the definition 
And that's the truth. So obviously it's better to be patient. And the proneness to, for us in our impatience is to become angry. Verse 9, be not quick in your spirit to become angry. For anger lodges in the bosom of fools. It's in the heart of fools. Anger can pass through our homes, but it must not live in our hearts. And it shouldn't even pass through our homes. And we need to be careful about a quick temper. Isn't that the point? In verse 9. Not, don't be quick in your spirit to become angry. Don't we all struggle with that? How long does it take you to really be provoked? Be honest. Be honest. Some of you maybe can honestly say a long time. Praise God for that. Most of us, can, our blood can boil so fast that it, it almost uh, beats the speed of light. It's like, man, that made me so mad. Well, when, when you're, you feel your blood boiling and you see how quickly you become angry and you haven't yet expressed it, talk to yourself, talk to yourself, talk to yourself. Remember Solomon. Remember what is good for man. Remember that you must not live in denial, uh, the denial of the truth that I'm not in control of my life. The end probably will be better than the beginning. I need to trust God in this thing. I don't need to blow up because then I'm just going to have to repent some more. I see the yellow light. If I keep going, I'm going to go into the intersection. It's going to be red and it's going to be collision. God, help me. Help me not to say what I feel right now. And if you have to walk away, then walk away. If you have to tell your spouse, honey, I can't talk right now because I'm just going to sin. Yes, she or he is provoking you. That's not the point. The point is, how do you respond to provocation? In a quick-tempered way, patience is always better than frustrations. And, and it's because of this impatience that we have the tendency to do what verse 10 talks about. We have the tendency to always be thinking, man, it used to be better than this. It used to be better than this. I wish I lived back then. I wish I was still single. I wish I lived in the 1700s. I wish, I wish, I wish, I wish. It. What about the good old days? You remember the good old days? And you know all the people that lived in the good old days said the same thing. Remember the good old days? The good old days always go back and back and back. And if you lived in the good old days, you'd probably have been dead by the time you were, you know, before you got to be 13. The good old days really weren't that good. I'm not saying there aren't fond memories, but I'm saying, the, and, and we should reflect on days that were better in some regards. I'm not denying that. What Solomon's going for is the tendency on our part to be frustrated with the providence of God and always reflecting on the, old, on the past. And instead of saying, where are the good old days? Why are these days so bad? We should be saying, I know why these days are bad. Because men's hearts are bad. My challenge is to see if I can make these, these, these days better. God, how can I make these better? If I can't, then help me sweetly submit to it. But I must not be impatient with your providence. Impatience causes frustration. Patience is always better than frustration. And, and this, is what, this is why we need a Savior, though, isn't it? Because we're all impatient. We all have a proneness to be angry. And sometimes some of us have a proneness to be quickly angry. And we need forgiveness for that sin. And we have a Savior who died for that sin. And we have a fruit of the Spirit, which is designed to replace that. It's called patience. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. That's right. Patience. And we can get that as we look at our Savior and as we pray to the Holy Spirit. This is... This is Charles Bridges' day in my life. I want to read to you something he said about looking at the Lord Jesus Christ when we feel impatient. Listen to this. The contemplation of the Savior is the mysterious secret of victory. When did an unadvised word ever drop from his lips? When did mockery or scorn ever ruffle his spirit? When did sudden provocations 
ever for a moment cloud the bright sunshine of his holiness? Of course, the answer is never. Look, then, and be what you behold. That's good counsel. Look at Jesus and become like him. The likeness grows on us as we look. He is the holiest man or woman who looks most steadily at the mirror of glorious perfection. And that's what First, Second Corinthians 3.18 teaches us to do. The fourth section is found in verses 11 and 12, and I th- I'm going to hurry now. I would just put the lesson this way. Wisdom protects and preserves. This isn't a better. This isn't a contrast. This is the lesson of wisdom protects and preserves. Funerals are better than birthdays. Rebuke is better than songs. Patience is better than frustration. And wisdom protects and preserves. Look at verses 11 and 12. Wisdom is good with an inheritance. That's kind of a confusing... Commentators differ over, does this mean that if you have an inheritance, you better hope you have some wisdom because wisdom is good with an inheritance. If you don't have wisdom, you're going to blow your inheritance, possibly. But most commentators would say wisdom is good like an inheritance, as an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. Wisdom is an advantage to those who see the sun. And then notice in verse 12, for the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. See, he's using an an illustration. Sometimes... An inheritance can protect you from future um, difficulties and problems and challenges in life. We now have an insurance that will take care of that, for example. And most of the commentators believe that Solomon is using the relatively helpful protection that can come from money and inheritance as an example. Like money and an inheritance can sometimes give you protection, wisdom really gives you protection. And you see that in verse 12. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves. Wisdom preserves. It protects and it preserves the life of him who has it. So what we need is wisdom. What kind of wisdom? Well, godly wisdom. Worldly wisdom is helpful and is protective, even for ungodly people, but not like godly wisdom. Godly wisdom is the ultimate protection in this life and in the judgment to come. I'd like to say more, but I'm not. I'm not going to. The fifth and final section is verses 13 and 14. And here the lesson is that the sovereignty of God consoles. It, it brings consolation to the heart. That's, that's the point. And this is actually the ultimate source of wisdom. Let let me make that clear. Look at the verses 13 and 14. Consider the work of God who can make straight what he has made crooked. Back in chapter 1 and verse 15, it says, What is crooked cannot be made straight. And now the question is, who can make straight what God has made crooked? Consider the work of God. There's a famous treatise on this subject um, written by Thomas Boston called The Crook in the Lot. Have any of you ever read The Crook in the Lot? Anybody here? Betty May has. It's, um, it's a great work. And it's, it's based on the, the, the usage of the word lot, meaning your uh, sort of your portion in life, your present situation, you know, what is your lot like these days? It's not a piece of property. It means what has fallen to you? What has God led you into? And sometimes he leads us into a lot, a a period of life, a season of life, a situation in life where there's some stuff that's really, really crooked. And guess what? Guess who made it crooked? Not the devil. It's not the devil that made, that put the crook in the lot. And Thomas Boston gives wonderful counsel as to how to deal with the disappointments and the frustrations of life when life deals you a curve. And it it starts by recognizing that this crook 
this crooked thing in my life comes from the hand of God. Comes from God. Doesn't that give us a little hint as to how we have to deal with it? We have to deal with it on our knees. We have to deal with it with an open Bible. We have to deal with it in prayer. We have to deal with it in faith. We have to deal with it in submission. Nobody can straighten out what God is crooked. Guess why? Because he's an absolutely sovereign God. He's omnipotent. Nothing he does can be changed or altered. And he won't change or alter it either unless that was his original plan. Believing in the absolute sovereignty of God brings consolation. Look, Let's read a little more. He says in verse 14, In the day of prosperity, be joyful. Okay? This is another reminder that Christians can and ought to be joyful. The book of Solomon is not about being always sorrowful. You've seen that repeatedly now. So when you are prospering by the kind providence of God, what emotion should be manifesting itself? Joy! And, I, and I've been trying to challenge us. Are we really joyful Christians? Do people look at, at our overall joy and say, I want to be like her. She seems to have peace and happiness all the time. You know some people, if, we, if this was a teaching question, I would stop and say, who in our church do you think manifests joy the most? And you can see it in their face and their smile and their countenance and their cheerful spirit. And several people would be identified. Many people would be identified. And I know that we can't change our personalities, but we can change our spirit. And if we would think more about the grace of God and the goodness and the kindness and the mercy of God in our salvation and in the wisdom of his providence... And why this good thing has happened in my life, we would be looking upward more and more and more with a smile upon our face. So the point is, if you're enjoying prosperity right now, rejoice. Don't say, this isn't going to last long. Say, thank you, God. I don't know how long this is going to last. I don't need this to believe in you, but I'm thankful for it. I'm joyful right now. That's good, because something may be on its heels. He goes on to say, and in the day of adversity... Christians experience both prosperity and adversity. If you don't believe that, read the book of Job. And by the way, if you're not sure about whether the end is better than the beginning, read the book of Job. When you go through adversity, what should you should do? Consider. Consider. Consider what? Consider God. Consider God. Because he has made the one as well as the other. Prosperity people like we heard about this morning in that video, but that was well done by Blake and, and what we saw. Well done. Those who teach that error believe that adversity comes from the devil. You try to get that out of verse 14. The one comes as well as the other from God. And if God calls us to adversity, we need to get on our knees and say, God, this is a calling. I want to glorify you. And I want to trust you through this. And I want to prove that you're worthy of my worship in the midst of this adversity. Never does grace look more beautiful than when it's under a smiting rod, to use an old expression. So what's the point? And by the way, this verse also goes on to say, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. God has made the one as well as the other in a way that we don't know the future. And you cannot get into the mind of God except with regard to how we should be living. We don't know the future. We don't need to know the future. We know who holds the future. Are you, are you experiencing prosperity? Rejoice. Are you experiencing adversity? Consider. Consider God. See, You see why this is the ultimate This is the ultimate wisdom. Everything I've been teaching from verses 1 through um, 12 are about wisdom. This is how a man can live good in life. This is the good that man should do in order to uh, work out his few days of his vain life. He should go to funerals more than he goes to birthday parties because they're going to be more valuable. And rebuke is going to be better than songs and so forth. That's all wisdom. But the ultimate wisdom is this. God is in control. God is sovereign. Nothing happens outside of the will and decree of God. Nothing. 
The Bible teaches us over and over and over. God is absolutely sovereign. He knows the end from the beginning. Isaiah 45. And what he knows in his omniscience, he knows because of his foreordination. Big theological term. It just means beforehand he ordained everything to happen down to the minutia. From the beginning to the end. And that's why he can tell it. And that's why his servants can prophesy it. Because he knows. Because he planned it. And our lives are a part of that. It's a beautiful thing. I'm not going to read this quote in here now. But I'm just going to tell you. It was so beautiful. The idea is a big tapestry. tapestry, And I know you've heard the illustration before. That when you look on the back side of a Persian carpet or a tapestry. It just doesn't make any sense. And there's all kinds of ravels. You have no idea what the picture is on the other side. But when you walk around to the front side. You see the beauty of the whole thing. And this man that I read this week said. That when we see the whole thing. When it's finally displayed at the end of history. Every Christian in the history of the church and all that happened in their lives, this whole beautiful thing, he said there won't be one single thread out of place. There won't be one misplaced color. It's all beautiful because it's all from God. And if you believe that with all of your heart, you will give praise to him when you're in prosperity and you will consider him when you're in adversity and you'll make him look good. That's the ultimate wisdom is to believe this about God. So there's the proverbial, part of the proverbial section. I'm going to say it one last time. Funerals are better than birthdays. Rebukes are better than songs. Patience is better than frustration. Wisdom protects and preserves. And the sovereignty of God consoles. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this portion of your word, which does tell us what is actually good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life. And it does tell us who can tell man what will be after him. We know that you are the answer to both of those questions. Lord, may we be men and, wisdom, men and women of wisdom. Teach us these things so that we will reflect your worth and your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.